Can you give the Lord praise offering today? All right, you can have a seat. I'm so glad to be with you this weekend. And I had a chance this last week to travel to Lebanon and to be with our partners there, Camille and Hoda Melke and Heart for Lebanon, and got to celebrate kind of a cool thing. I got to celebrate their oldest daughter, May Lee, uh, who was on staff here, was a fellow here, was a staff person here. Uh, she got married this last week, and I got to be a part of that celebration, which was just very, very cool. And so uh, continue to pray for Heart for Lebanon. Just while I'm thinking about that, continue to pray for Lebanon, uh, for Heart for Lebanon. So many challenging things that are going on there, and uh, I know that they would covet your prayers uh, as a congregation. Uh, we're so glad that you're here. Those of you who are watching online, so glad that you've joined us today. We've got a ton of stuff that's going on uh, this summer. We want you to be aware of it, uh, so take a look at this. Hey Fairfax, Ronnie and Logan here. Just wanna take a minute and say thank you to everyone that volunteers around here. It takes so many hands to keep this place running every single weekend, and you do such an amazing job welcoming in our congregation and our visitors. If you're looking for a way to get connected, we're gonna have some opportunities coming up over the next few weeks. So keep an eye out whether you're here in person or online. And if you're looking to join a group or get connected in another way, you can visit us at our table out in the lobby, or you can click the button above. Fairfax, we are so excited about next weekend. It has been way too long since we've done a child dedication. And Logan, I know for you, this is pretty special. Yeah, and if you're like me and over the last year or so you've had a child, then I'm sure you are just as excited as I am to dedicate that child this coming weekend. If you want to take part in our child dedication, you can visit our website and sign up and get more information there. We have another very exciting weekend coming up. September 18th and 19th It's going to be our next baptism weekend. If you haven't been around for baptism weekends, they're absolutely amazing. About nine years ago, my wife and I were rebaptized as adults as a way to just commit to following the Lord. Since then, I've seen both of my kids baptized. So over this next month, I hope that you will take the time, think through this, and if you'd like some more information or you just want to go ahead and register, visit our website. Fairfax, we love you. Before Logan starts making coffee and I start playing drums, let's turn this over to Rod. All right, some cool stuff that's going on uh, in our church. I, uh, before I jump into the message today, I want to just say thanks um, for a couple of things. One, uh, we say it often, but uh, never enough, is just thank you for your generous support of uh, this place. Uh, everything that we do is made possible because of that. One of our core values as a church is generosity, and you live that out in such faithful ways. And so many of you um, are obedient to the biblical principle of the tithe, and uh, you are giving 10% right off the top to the work of the kingdom here at Fairfax, and we just are so thankful for your generosity. And uh, if you wanna give as an act of worship today, maybe you've started connecting with this place and haven't yet had an opportunity to get involved in this way. Uh, we encourage you to do that. If you wanna give as a, as a part of worship, if you're online, there's a little button at the top that says give, and you can just click that, start the process. We have offering boxes in the back of the sanctuary that you can use. You can text to give. Uh, you can give online. Lots of different ways that you can give to support the ministry of Fairfax. So that's the first thing. The second thing I wanted to 
to give thanks and just thank you all for is that um, I know you've been watching the news and, and kind of the recent surge in COVID and, and uh, the Delta variant and all of that and the implications of that. And I just want to say thank you um, as a congregation. Just thank you to those of you who have gotten vaccinated. We've talked about that over the last several months. And uh, we have right around with our adult community, right around 90% of our adult population that has been vaccinated, which is just amazing. It, it's the largest percent. Really, when I look at states and regions and areas and even this Northern Virginia area, um, it's just an amazing number. And I, I just wanna say thank you uh, to all of you who have taken that step and have gotten vaccinated. I know that getting vaccinated is a very personal health decision. Um, many of you know that my wife, um, Donna, had breast cancer a few years ago. And uh, she had lots of decisions to make, as you always have to make with kind of health issues that you're dealing with and, you know, decision of whether to have surgery or not have surgery, whether to do chemotherapy or not do chemotherapy, uh, whether to do radiation or not do radiation. And uh, there were a lot of opinions uh, that people had, opinions that the doctors had about what she should do and not do and opinions that her friends had and opinions that her family had and opinions that I had about that. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it was Donna's decision in terms of what she was going to do. But this was the deal, and I've been kind of thinking about this and that situation and kind of what we're going through now in our country and around the world. Whatever decision Donna made as she was facing that horrible disease, it was a decision that medically it only impacted her. Like it, it, it wasn't, at least in terms of its medical impact, it didn't impact me, it didn't impact our kids, it didn't impact this church, this community, those around her. It was a decision that just impacted her. And the COVID vaccine obviously is very, very different than that. It just impacts so many people. And not only does it impact the people who have chosen to get vaccinated, like right now, statistically, 99% of the people who are dying of COVID have not been vaccinated. So obviously, making that decision does impact you personally, but it's a decision that impacts your family, your friends, your community. Um, it slows the spread of this awful disease that has so profoundly impacted our world. And I just wanna say thanks. That's just it, I just wanna say thanks. Like Donna, most of you have gotten vaccinated um, probably because you were convinced it was the best medical decision for you. But some of you um, may not have been convinced of that, for whatever reason, may not have been convinced of that, and you got vaccinated anyway. Uh, and you got vaccinated not so much to protect yourself, um, but for love of neighbor. And I just think that's huge. I just wanna thank you for doing that. You, you've made our church a little safer place. You've allowed us to do what we do now because of that and the safety kind of that that provides. And you've made our world a little bit safer place as well. So just thank you, thank you, thank you for that. Okay, so we're in uh, week five of this eight-week series on Revelation. And uh, again, I know even those of you that maybe have been to part of this or whatever, maybe here for the first time, maybe you're visiting, you're going, oh my goodness, what did I get into coming to a church where they're doing a series on Revelation? But we're looking at it in a way that hopefully is really, really practical. And I know that 
Maybe it's been a little redundant, the fact that I've kind of said this every week, and Josh said it last week, but it's really important if you're going to understand Revelation, to understand three things about it. So I'm just going to keep saying it over and over again. One, you have to understand that Revelation is a letter. It's a letter that was written to a particular group of people at a particular time and in dealing with a particular set of circumstances. In the case of Revelation, it was written by John, one of the disciples of Jesus, who himself had been, had been banished to the Isle of Patmos because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And it's written, it's a vision that Jesus gives to John while he's on Patmos to a church that is located, or nine, seven, nine church, seven churches, sorry, seven churches that are located in what is now modern day Turkey, who are going through incredible persecution themselves. And the reason that's so important to understand is because it keeps us from interpreting Revelation in a way that could only make sense in the 21st century. I said this over and over again, that scripture is the timeless, authoritative word of God. So it cannot just make sense in one century or in one setting. It can't be irrelevant for 2,000 years and then all of a sudden, because of something that happens in the world, now it's relevant in the 21st century. It has to be relevant to every situation. And understanding this as a letter, understanding the context helps us understand what the timeless principles are that are relevant in the 5th century, the 8th century, the 12th century, the 21st century. That's the first thing. The second thing is that you just have to keep in mind that it is not a book that can be read chronologically. If you try to read Revelation as a series of linear events that are happening one after the other, you will get incredibly confused and it will not make sense. You have to look at the book of Revelation as a kind of series of windows through which you look and see the same reality, but from a different perspective. And so you have all of these windows that you look. So it's not so much when you read Revelation, what's happening next, but what does John see next? And then the third thing is you have to understand that Revelation is a part of this weird genre of literature that's known as apocalyptic literature. And apocalypse means to unveil. It means to reveal something and it's filled with all of this weird imagery and symbolism where people are represented as animals and historical events are talked about in terms of earthquakes and floods and colors and numbers have meaning, all of that kind of weird imagery. And the reason for the imagery is because the purpose of apocalyptic literature is not just to inform your mind, it is to ignite your spirit. It's like other art forms, like poetry and music and movies. You listen to them not just to get information, but to feel something. Not just to learn something, but to feel something. And when you're going through incredi incredibly difficult times, you don't just need to know something. You need to feel something as well. So that's just so important. Now, the first week we looked at Jesus' message to the seven churches. He wrote to the seven churches. He gave a message to each of those churches, he, can, he commended them on some things, he condemned them on some things. The second week, we looked at window one, where John sees this vision of a throne, and everything, all of creation, has turned its attention to the throne and is worshiping the one on the throne. And then last week, or third week, we looked at window two, where we see this scroll that has seven seals, and the scroll represents life, and the seals represent everything that the enemy 
throws at humankind to keep us from experiencing that life, brokenness, pain, death, struggles, all of that. And one by one, Jesus opens the seals, takes away their power that keeps us from experiencing the life that God has created us to live. And then last week, I thought Josh did an incredible job walking us through the next thing that John sees as he looks through window two. And he sees the blowing of seven trumpets that herald the inbreaking of God's kingdom in this broken, sinful world and remind us that as we worship, as we pray, as we turn our attention to the one on the throne, that we experience this kingdom. We experience the life that God has created us to experience. So in chapter 6 through 11, we see these seven seals and we see these seven trumpets. And then you get to chapters 15 and 16, which we're going to look at next week, and you see these seven bowls. So you have seven seals, you have seven trumpets, then you have seven bowls. But in between the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, you have this kind of interlude, this three-chapter interlude, Revelation 12, 13, and 14, where it kind of takes a pause and as we look through this window, which is like window three, and we look through this window, we see this cosmic battle that is taking place, some of which is seen from our perspective, some of which is not seen from our perspective. But Jesus wants to make sure we know what's going on. He wants us to make sure we know that there is a battle going on. Window three starts this way. It says, a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon, under, the, under her feet, and a crown of stars on her head. And she was pregnant, and she cried out in pain, and she was about to give birth. Now, as you move through the rest of the vision, it becomes pretty clear that the woman in this vision is Mary, the mother of Jesus. It represents the one who is giving birth to the Messiah. But it represents more than just Mary. It also represents Israel, who the Old Testament prophets described as giving birth to the Messiah. When the Old Testament prophets, particularly Isaiah, talked about Israel and the role that Israel plays in the history of humanity, the huge role is giving birth to the Messiah will be the people out of which the Messiah will come. But it also represents the church that's charged with proclaiming this Messiah to the world. So in many ways, this woman represents all of the people of God, Mary, Israel, the church who God uses to bring the gospel of Jesus into the world. And then immediately after seeing this woman who is about to give birth, we see this dragon, this red, fiery dragon. And this is what we're told. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads, like power, just, just kind of the symbols of power. And his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment that it was born. 
She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But the dragon was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven, and the great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent, we find out who the dragon is, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Now this is, folks, this is basically the Christmas story. This is probably not the Christmas story you read to your kids on Christmas Eve, but this is basically the Christmas story. And you, you see some of the similarity. Like the, the part of the Christmas story that we tend to read on Christmas Eve is like out of Matthew 2, right? And, and when you think about the Christmas story, you know, you think it's like this, this quaint, this wonderful story, this story that's filled with all of this, this wonder and all of that. But you look at this vision and you look at Matthew 2 and you see the similarities in what's being talked about. Because in Matthew 2, Mary is there, gives birth to a son. As soon as the son is born, Herod, the dragon, the instrument of the dragon, tries to have the baby killed, tries to destroy the baby, is threatened by the baby. Mary flees into a desert. She flees into the wilderness. She flees into Egypt. You see all of that. It's a reminder that Christmas isn't just about the wonder of Jesus' birth. It's also about how much the enemy is threatened by Jesus' birth. See, that's the part that sometimes we forget is, yes, the incarnation is filled with wonder. Yes, the incarnation is, a, is an incredible kind of moment, but also it is a moment in which the enemy is threatened, in which evil is threatened. Eugene Peterson puts it this way, Jesus' birth excites more than wonder. It excites, it enlivens evil. It excites evil. Revelation 12 is a picture of the war behind all wars. This is a picture of the cosmic war that's going on. It's a war that is, that is oftentimes unseen, but nevertheless very, very real. And this picture is reminding the original audience of two very important things. One, don't forget that you're in a battle. <laughs> Do not forget that you're in a battle. Like one of the things that affluence does one of the things that a measure of stability does, one of the things that kind of having life going on and, and not too many awful things, like one of the things that all of that does is that sometimes it lulls us to sleep. We forget we're in a battle. When you're in the midst of a level of affluence and a level of stability, you just tend to forget that you're in a battle. And the enemy in this battle isn't, it isn't the people who look different than us or the people who believe different than us or the people who behave different than us or the people who have different values than us. The enemy isn't the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. The enemy is the dragon and the enemy is real and the enemy wants to destroy you. 
But oftentimes we get lulled to sleep because of the stability of life, because of the affluence of life, whatever it is, we get lulled to sleep. We forget we are in a battle and Jesus doesn't want us to forget that. Because when you know you're in a battle, your worship becomes way more passionate. Like when you know you're in a battle, you don't have to be encouraged to worship with passion. You worship with passion because it is your lifeline. When you know you're in a battle, your prayers become more fervent. You don't have to worry about like, oh, am I going through all the ritualistic motions of praying? No, no, no. You become desperate to pray. You become desperate to be in the presence of God. When you know you're in a battle, you become more dependent on God, more trusting of God, more desperate for God's presence. That's the first thing. Secondly, it reminds us that this enemy has already been defeated, and we'll, we'll touch on that a couple of times today. Six times in chapter 12, we read that the dragon is thrown down. And the Greek word there that's used is actually kind of a slang word that means bounced, that the dragon is bounced. So throughout chapter 12, Satan just keeps getting bounced. He gets bounced out of heaven, and then he stirs up trouble on earth, and then he eventually gets bounced on earth. And Jesus reminding the seven churches and reminding us that this is why things are so hard. Because we are in a war with an increasingly desperate enemy who knows he is defeated what will do anything to hang on to power. You know, you see this in kind of all kinds of things in the world. You get a wild animal cornered and it will do really ferocious things. You get a political leader cornered. You get an evil military leader cornered. You get an evil nation cornered. You get a terrorist group cornered. And in the midst of the fear of like we're going down, the midst of the fear that defeat is at hand, that's when sometimes some of the most horrible things happen. Like that activity is a sign that someone knows they've lost. And that's what scripture is saying about the enemy. The fact that he has lost doesn't decrease his activity. It increases his activity in the world. Now, in chapter 13, so that's chapter 12. The birth of the Messiah, the Christmas story, the enemy who wants to destroy all of that and destroy us. Now you get to chapter 13, and we see how this cosmic battle is actually waged out on the ground. And we see the instruments that the dragon is using to wage this war. And they're described as two beasts. So you have the dragon, and then you have these two beasts. And beast number one is described in verse one and following this way. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. There's a beast that comes out of the sea, beast that comes out of the land. And he had 10 horns again, all the same kind of symbols of power and all of that. Ten horns, seven heads, ten crowns on his horns, on each head, a blasphemous name. And the beast I saw represented or resembled a lion, but he had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like, uh, represented a leopard, and he had feet like uh, those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his power 
and his throne and great authority. And the whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshiped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can make war against the beast? Now, this beast, in many ways, is the embodiment of the beasts that are described in Daniel 7. So you have you have a lot of different apocalyptic literature in Scripture, and some of the apocalyptic literature is Daniel. And in Daniel 7, you have this description of these beasts that represent all of the kind of known powers of the day. And so you have Babylon, the Empire of Babylon, Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Medes, eventually the Greeks are all represented by these Beasts and the beast that you see in Revelation 13 is like the embodiment of all of these beasts that we see in Daniel 7. So the first beast represents what we could call dragon manipulated political power. For those reading this in 96 AD, this beast would have clearly been Rome, it would have been seen as Rome, but ultimately, the point of Revelation 13 is not to identify the first beast as a particular nation. I grew, up, I grew up in a church that had a segment within our church that loved studying Revelation. And, uh, and we had theologians that loved studying Revelation. And one of the things, one of the traps I think that they fell into is this idea that the beast represents just one nation. And so, you know, the time I was growing up, the beast represented the USSR, it represented Russia, it represented like that was the beast. And, and for the first century, certainly for the first century church, they would have looked at this and it would have said, yeah, Rome like represent. But the point of Revelation 13 is not to identify a particular nation. The first beast represents any nation, any political system, any power structure that so captivates the loyalties of people that it becomes more important than God. It becomes the savior. It becomes the ultimate it becomes the ultimate object of our affection. Jesus is reminding us here to be discerning about where we put our hope. That whenever we place our ultimate loyalties in a nation or in a particular political system or in a particular political party or in a particular political leader, we turn that into something that is beast-like. Now, nations matter, governments matter. Governments are intended by God to create systems that are just and fair and protect the most vulnerable among us. But when they become more than that, when they become the place where we put our hope, when we look to them to provide what only God can provide, they become bestial and will ultimately leave us in despair. That's the first beast. Second beast that's seen is in verses 11 through 18. It says, then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. So beast that came out of the sea, beast came out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. And he exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great, miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven 
uh, to earth in full view of men because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast. He did. He deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the first beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath or life to the first beast, the image of the first beast, so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He forced everyone, small, rich, poor, slave, free, to receive a mark on his right hand and on his forehead so that no one could buy, some of you just woke up, okay? So that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. So if the first beast is dragon-manipulated political Power. The second beast is dragon-manipulated religious power. And you see this later on in Revelation where the second beast is referred to as the false prophet. Now, in the case of Rome, political power and religious power were, were intermingled. They were, they were two sides of the same coin. It's not like when we think about those two things, we think about them so separate because of the idea of the separation of church and state, and so you have political power over here, and then supposedly this wide chasm between, then you have religious power over here, and we tend to think of them as kind of two separate things. But in the case of Rome, political power, religious power were intermingled. There existed actually an imperial priesthood whose primary role was to promote the imperial cult. Its primary role was to promote the worship of Caesar. And the priests of the imperial cult, they wore crowns that displayed busts of the deified emperors who they served. And so just like the second beast is tasked with getting people to worship the first beast, the imperial priesthood was tasked with getting people to worship Caesar. And if someone didn't worship Caesar... This imperial priesthood could make life incredibly difficult on them. They could make it hard to buy, to sell, to do business in the Roman economy. And for these first century Christians, that's exactly what happened. The fact that they continued to declare Jesus is Lord rather than Caesar is Lord was not just a like a worship celebration that you just kind of do maybe without kind of thinking about the implications. No, no, no. Every time they said Jesus is Lord, they were saying Caesar is not Lord. Every time they were saying Jesus is Lord, they were saying Jesus is God. Jesus is the one who is worthy to be worshiped. Jesus is the one to give our lives to, not Caesar. And the result of that, the result of that was that they went through incredibly difficult times. It pushed them out. We've talked about this before. It pushed them out of the economic system. It pushed them out of access to resources and buying and selling. all. It, it, it actually resulted in a life of poverty. Now, that's the first century, right? You go, okay, well, I, I get that. Like, that's the beast. It represented anything that kind of you know, like pushed people to worship the 
imperial system, all of that. But like, what does that mean? Like, what is the second beast in our culture? In our culture, the second beast is anyone who encourages you to put your ultimate hope in anything or anyone other than Christ. It's anyone who encourages you to put your hope in the government or to put your hope your ultimate hope in a political party or in a political leader. It's anyone who encourages you to put your ultimate hope in your vocational success or your academic success or your financial success. It's anyone who encourages you to put your ultimate hope in the person that you're dating or the person that you're married to or in your kids or in your parents or in your friends. Now we come to the part of Revelation, right? that is so incredibly fascinating to so many people, the mark of the beast. And first of all, before we talk about the mark of the beast and what it is, we probably should talk about what the mark of the beast is not. It's not some kind of tattoo or some kind of chip that literally gets put on or inserted in one's hand or in one's forehead. Can you imagine, let's just ask you a question, can you imagine how effective that would be on anyone who has read this passage? Like what's interesting is that I know people that know nothing, nothing, nothing really about the gospel, about scripture, about anything, but they've heard of 666 and they go, that's probably not good, okay? So can you imagine like how effective it would be to, for anyone who's read this passage, like, you know, someone came in and said, we just like to, we want to write, we want to tattoo the number 666 on your forehead. Are you good with that? We want to tattoo the number 666 on your right hand. You think that's a good idea? No, no one is going for that. Some people didn't even get vaccinated because they thought it was the mark of the beast. That is not going to work. Like that is not what this is talking about. So how many people do you think are gonna let someone tattoo 666 on their head or on their hand? Nobody is going to do that. No, the mark of the beast is way more subtle than that. The mark of the beast is way more destructive than that. 666 is a symbol, right? Not a secret code. Six is one less than seven. That, that's free. That math lesson is free to you today. Six is one less than seven. And seven is the number in scripture that represents perfection. It's the number that represents completeness. So six represents a kind of mimicking of completeness. Something that seems close to being complete, something that's good enough. It's, it's not a seven, but it's a six. It's close. It's, it's okay. It's almost a seven. And by repeating the number three times, six, 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 it's almost like it magnifies its incompleteness. And the forehead and the hand, those are symbolic as well. Like G.K. Beale describes it this way. The forehead represents ideological commitment and the hand, the practical outworking of that commitment. So in other words, the hand and the forehead are symbolic of the way that we're formed spiritually, the way that we live out our 
our spirituality, the way that we live out our life, internal character is made manifested in outward behavior. That which is the forehead is made manifest in the outward behavior, the working of that right hand. So the mark of the beast isn't something that someone puts on us. It's not something that someone puts in us. The mark of the beast, it's what's going on in your character that leads to the way you live your life. The mark of the beast is compromising your faith to make more money. The mark of the beast is compromising your faith to be more successful. The mark of the beast is having your attention more focused on your career or your accomplishments or your success than it is on God. The mark of the beast is trying to find ultimate purpose in life, ultimate meaning in life in something or someone other than God. So don't worry. Don't worry about someone imposing the mark of the beast. I know folks, and I know folks in my own church group, they live their life in fear that someone was going to sneak the mark of the beast on them, or someone was going to sneak the mark of the beast in them. Don't worry about someone imposing the mark of the beast on you. Focus on where you see the mark of the beast at work in your own life. Like, where does God want you to experience a seven and you are settling for a six? Lots of people live a six kind of life. They go through life, kind of a six kind of life, and are convinced that it's fine, that it's good enough, that it's okay. It's a six. It's it's almost a seven, it's fine, it's okay, but that's what the enemy wants you to believe. But Jesus is saying that a six is just a pale imitation of the real thing, that ultimately it's a dead end, that ultimately it will not get you where you want to go, that you may flourish for a while living kind of a six life. You may flourish for a while, but it will not last. It ultimately leads to despair. Now we get to the conclusion of this interlude. So you have chapter 12 where you see the Messiah being born. You see the dragon who whole purpose in life is to destroy the work of the Messiah. And then you have chapter 13 where these two beasts that are kind of the instruments of the dragon to, to carry this out in different kinds of ways. And then you get to chapter 14, and you see how the battle ends. And we don't have time to look at the whole chapter, but let me just look at the first few verses. Then I looked, John says, and there before me was the lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. And the sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the living, four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And they followed the lamb wherever he goes. And they were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God 
and the Lamb. So this is a vision of all who have come through the battle victorious, right? It says that there are 144,000. Now don't worry about like, did you make the cut, right? This is not like trying out for the basketball team and wondering if you made the list for the A team or the B team, right? Like, don't worry about if you're like, made the cut. That number also is a symbolic number. It's the number of completeness. It means that everyone, everyone, everyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ is there. It means that the blood of the lamb has absorbed judgment for all sins. It means that no one is beyond repair. It means that no one is unredeemable. It means that no one has gone in the wrong direction for so long that they cannot, that there is no turning back. It means that the dragon and the beast, as compelling as they may seem in the moment, are on the wrong side of history, and they will not win. In fact, they have already lost. I love the way theologian Daryl Johnson describes this scene. He says, the new Israel of God is made up of Jews and Gentiles Jews and Arabs and Kenyans and Norwegians and Brazilians and Japanese, multicultural, multilingual, multiracial, transnational. They are all there with the king ready to sing a new song. You remember when we went through our study in Acts and, and, and the church went from being this little sectarian group in Jerusalem made up of just one ethnicity, just one group, and it became this multicultural, multinational, multi-ethnic, multi-racial, transnational group, that this is the fulfillment of what got started when the church was started in Acts. This is the living out of that, this multinational, where no one, no one, no one, because of what Christ has done for us on the cross and our willingness to accept that, that no one is excluded. And notice in this victorious scene that what John sees is not the lion of Judah. You know, Jesus is described in so many ways in scripture. And one of them is the lion of Judah, but he doesn't see in this vision, he doesn't this victorious vision where the battle's been won and Jesus, he doesn't see the lion of Judah standing on Mount Zion. He sees the lamb the lamb that was slain, the lamb that was bloodied, the lamb that, whose life was laid down. It's a reminder that this is a different kind of battle and victory is won in a different kind of way. The dragon and the two beasts, like they fight the battle using the typical weapons of war, right? They use the weapons of violence. They use the weapons of oppression. They use the weapons of death. They use the weapons of brutality. They use the weapons of political power and economic power and military power. Like they use all of those weapons. They're the weapons that we think about when we think about war. But the lamb fights the battle in a different way, using different weapons. The lamb won the battle not by taking life, but by laying down his life. And because Jesus fights the battle in a different way, he calls all of us who follow him to fight the battle in a different way. John describes this different way in Revelation 13 when he says, 
this calls. He's talking about the battle now. This is in Revelation 13, the chapter just before, where we've talked about the activity of the dragon, the activity of the beast, all of this stuff that's coming down, all of this hardship coming down. And John says, this is what we need to do in response. This is the way we need to fight the battle. This is the way we need to win this war. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Does that sound like battle language to you? It doesn't to me, right? But that's the battle language that John is talking about. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Jesus is saying, put away the sword. Put away the sword. Put away the weapons of this world. Put away the way that the world fights battles. Put that away. We fight this battle with different weapons. We fight this battle with patient endurance and faithfulness. Our weapons are prayer and fasting and passionate worship and gracious hospitality and sacrificial, lay down your life kind of love for other people. Our weapons are the pursuit of justice and the love of mercy and walking humbly before our God. Those are our weapons. Our weapons are honest confession, not the confession of other people's sin, the confession of our sin. Our weapons are honest confession and genuine repentance and a willingness to allow God to transform us and change us and help us to become the people he's created us to be. That's how we fight this battle. Those are the weapons Jesus is saying we must use. Because if we use the weapons of the enemy, Jesus reminds us, we will become just like the enemy and nothing in this broken world will ever change. This is the problem. This is the cycle of humanity. I talk about it over and over again. The cycle of humanity is that our tendency is to fight back against that which we see in the world that does not reflect God and the holiness of God to fight back using the same weapons of power and authority and, and at times our angry words and angry actions and violence in return and leveraging power to try to get like we try to fight using the same weapons of the enemy and all that happens when you use the same weapons of the enemy and you see this over and over and over in the history of the world where one wrong begets another wrong that begets another wrong that begets another wrong when you see this nothing in the world ever changes and we just become like the enemy that we so desperately want to defeat. Now let me close with this. In verse eight of this chapter, we read this. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Now for the original audience hearing that, Babylon was a code for Rome, right? And in 96 AD, no one would have thought of Rome 
as having fallen. 96 AD, Rome was large and in charge. 96 AD, Rome was at the height of its power. 96 AD, Rome was like, had all the power and all the authority, but Jesus is saying to this group, he is saying, it may not look like it on the surface, but this powerful thing that is controlling your life, it has already fallen. Its power has already been taken away. Now, I don't know what Babylons that you may be facing right now. I don't know what things you're experiencing that right now are so overwhelming and they seem so in control of your life that you can't imagine experience any, experiencing any victory over that. But I just wanna say, and I think it's just a word that some of you need to hear today, Babylon has fallen. Because of what Christ has done on the cross, Babylon has fallen. And yes, it may take a minute. Yes, you may not see that in a way that you want to see it, but its power has been taken away. I mean, that's the message of the gospel, that even the worst thing could possibly happen, death itself, the power of death has been taken away. The power of whatever Babylon it is that you are dealing with, the power of it to destroy your life, the power of it to control your life, the power of it to keep you from experiencing joy in life and the purpose that God has created you for, the power of that has been taken away. Babylon has fallen. The Babylon in your life has fallen. Yeah, we need to celebrate that. Babylon has fallen. God, we are so thankful. We are thankful that not only do we get a picture of where all history ends and where all history is rushing towards, but we get a picture of reality right now as we read this amazing, amazing book that brought hope to those who read it and heard it in the first century and have it's brought hope to every group of followers of Jesus that have heard it or read it in every century since, including ours. And so Lord, we give you thanks that you are victorious. We give you thanks that your weapons are different than the weapons of this world. And that you have called us to use different weapons in this cosmic battle that we are a part of. That this is the way we fight our battle prayer and fasting and passionate worship in turning our attention to the one who is on the throne in giving our life to the one who laid down his life for us. That that's where victories are won. That that's where the world gets changed. That's where relationships get changed. That's where things that look hopeless become situations of hope. That's where despair gets turned into hope. This is how, this is how we fight. This is what victory looks like. And we give you thanks. We give you thanks. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's stand today.